This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey, hey, welcome back to Ozpol Snack Pod, the show that is kind of like Iron Chef, where you slap together a bunch of random shit and hope it comes out somewhat edible. That's right, this is Ozpol Snack Pod, the podcast where two of Australia's foremost political nobodies bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian politics and news with a side of crispy memes, and we're also the official podcast of the Ozpol Shit Posting Facebook group, so head on over there and uh, smash that join button. Uh, I'm, my name is Noon, and with me, as always, is friend, confidant, and member of my inner sanctum, Zach. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for having me again, Noon. Thank you, Zach. I, I, I like making the show. I like hanging out with you. I like planning it. Uh, I like doing it. So, thanks. Sounds like a win-win-win to me. Yeah. Um, I also want to shout out our new patron, Adam. So, Adam, thank you so much for signing up. Um, listeners, if you head over to patreon.com forward slash Snackpod and give us a dollar a month, you get a bonus episode every month. This month, we're going to be talking about dog training, how we train our dogs, and some of the stuff I do training other people's dogs. Um, so, if that sounds interesting, or you want like other stuff, like we talked about Bob Hawk being a CIA asset, other stuff, head on over to Patreon. And... Uh, we should probably get into our first segment, Zach. But before we do, um, we, we've introduced a new first segment, the the aperitifs, and we um, get a little bit yeah, of splashback. Yeah, we got some <laughs> splashback on the aperitifs. Yeah, the feedback we got was um, a this is cringe, b this is too long, and c why didn't you consult me first? Yeah, um, and it's a I rough three. Think- yeah, yeah. I think I've managed to um, incorporate that feedback uh, into we this worked it, updated. It yeah, we workshopped it. We went back and forth. You know, we appreciate our listeners' feedback. We do, and uh, and we try to we try to action that. Um, you know, as 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 they say in the corporate world. So hopefully, this new, improved, updated, and much shorter version. <laughs> or mildly less cringe. Yeah. Um, we figure we may as well put in the work now because we're planning on doing this segment at the beginning of every single episode of this show going forward. So, you know, better be vaguely listenable. All right, hit it. Can I offer you one of these, sir? No, no. Take it away at once. Cool. So first up, uh, I wanted to talk, well, I don't want to, but I'm going to talk very briefly about Christian Porter. Um, obviously world-class shit cunt. Um, stood up in Parliament this week to disclose funding that he had received to pay for his defamation case against the ABC, um, which is about articles the ABC wrote about him, uh, you know, doing sexual assault, which I'm sure most of our listeners know the story there. Um, but this is only peripherally about that. This is about this this funding that he sort of disclosed. He listed three things. Money that was paid by the ABC to cover some of the costs of mediation. Um, two, that his lawyer did some work for free and some for cheap. And three, he received an unknown amount from an unknown source, uh, which is thought to be as much as a million dollars. It's from an organization called the Legal Services Trust. And Christian Porter says he has no idea who controls the trust. 
and also heavily implied that because they gave him money, he can't ask who is behind it. Um, which this legal is, ex- <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> Just very bold from a guy who's like uh, undertaking legal action because people have accused him of doing awful stuff, and but then he's been like, but no, no, I'm not going to let anybody read the defense of. <laughs> Uh-huh. In that case, and also you can't know where my money comes from, but trust me, I am in no way sus. Or I'm shady. in no way a suspect person. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, everyone's in a bit of an uproar about it, and uh, former Prime Minister Malcolm Trumbull has likened it to a masked stranger, stranger handing him a bag of cash, which I actually think is a pretty reasonable analogy for what he says has happened. Personally, I suspect that this is... Like his weak attempt at a smokescreen, uh, and so like to be clear, I have no evidence for this. this. is not an actual accusation. This is just hypoth imagining. But I imagine that Christian Port has a pretty good idea of who that money came from. <laughs> I agree with guess. that assessment. Yeah, I would say that this is probably less surprising than a masked stranger handing him a bag full of cash. That's yes. my- that would be yes. where I feel like the analogy falls sort of down, a falls little. apart. Yeah. 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 Um, now, listeners, if you want more of this horrible story, I can recommend an exceptionally terrible article in The Australian uh, by famous testicle Gerard Henderson of Insider's fame. <laughs> uh, strongly recommend reading it if you hate yourself, but the basic premise of it is, if Christian Porter can't receive anom- anonymous donations of up to a million dollars, how can anyone hope to stand up to the ABC? So, <laughs> cool. Hey, every... <laughs> Every defense of the worst people in Australian politics individually doing shit stuff becomes this, like, extraordinarily important terrain upon which to plant the flag of freedom and justice for these right-wing commentators. Like, it's... It's like, maybe George Pell isn't the hill you should die on, and nor is Christian Porter. Nor is Christian Porter. (laughs) Just let let him slide out of parliament. Yeah. These are both hills that can be bulldozed, you know, build yep. a, build some apartments on top of them. Yeah. I think that's fine. Uh, st- okay. pl- just stop stop defending this guy. Stop giving him any kind of rhetorical cover. He's literally, like, he couldn't make himself look guiltier if he tried at this stage. Yeah. I think that's really what the, the moral is. Short of, this- of actually admitting it, which weirdly would kind of... It would make him Be seem way more less bad. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Anyway. Okay. Now to move on to our other aperitif, uh, also featuring a terrible person in uh, Australian Parliament, Joel Fitzgibbon, who is a much nicer aperitif, says he won't contest the next election. Hooray. Maybe. Co- Which is. That's good. Can we get that, you know. like, fast positivity corner sting in there, Zach? Oh, yeah. Sure. You bet. I'll slap it in there. Positivity corner. This yeah. is kind of like someone like brought out a tray which had a little like shot glass filled with like liquid shit in it and they were like hey you don't have to drink this that's the kind of positive that this story is. exactly yeah yeah you know it's like a it's it's it's, it's one of those absence of a shot. negative yeah 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 totally stories, uh yeah. yeah but don't worry there's still a presence of a negative in this mini positivity corner because um you know joel fitzgibbon uh was uh, he's, he's a labor member for the hunter valley uh and the last time that Hunter Valley Labour members got to vote on their representative was in 1984 when they chose Joel Fitzgibbon's, uh, Fitzgibbon's dad. dad. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so will yeah. they get to cool. vote this time? 
Probably not, because Elbow has chosen five-time Olympian and former coal miner Daniel Ripacholi. Oh, great. Um, in a Christina Keneally-esque parachuting in. Um, there's a bunch of local people who want to contest the seat. Um, I think this decision means there won't be a ballot, like with Christina Keneally and Tuli, but I'm not 100% sure mm-hmm. about how Labour works. It listeners, if you do know, let us know. Uh, but yeah. Cool. I mean, the other like element of this is that, you know, Joel Fitzgibbon is... You know, is is essentially a climate denialist. He's effectively yeah. a climate yeah. denialist. I think you know. I mean, his entire sort of political aim was to weaken Labor's climate policy. And you know, when he was like, his sort of statements around this has basically been like, "I've done that. Like, I came here to chew bubble gum and fuck up the environment." And the environment is all fucked up. And I also just ran out of bubble gum as well, so I can go home now. And that's like. That's what's happened. So, you know, this isn't necessarily a good thing. He's claiming this as like, you know, I've done what I came here to do, which is make the future worse. And also, he's not the only person who's regressive on climate in labor. Of course. And like this parachuting in of a former coal miner. I don't know anything about Repasholi. Neither do I. Definitely doesn't seem like a move towards labor being like, yeah, maybe we can talk about just transition for the coal workers in this area as opposed to just like no let's do more coal mining or just literally even like let the local labor members choose who's going to represent them mm, yeah like maybe do it, that do might a little help bit of democracy if the people who might vote for them were like we will vote for this but I, who knows maybe Repa Sholi donated a lot of money or something. Who, who can say <laughs> oh well in that case it's just it. yeah okay let's move on let's Positivity corner. this is an actual real nice positivity corner full strength uh the eastern bard bandicoot has been successfully reintroduced to the wild um they hey. were extinct in the wild for the past 30 years uh which is a technical term but it means exactly what it sounds like um, and now with about 15... Oh, Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> yeah, well, they've, they've been upgraded from extinct in the wild to endangered um, because they've got about 1,500 animals living in the wild. And they've been introduced to several sites that are, are free of feral predators. And then in two other locations, they're being guarded by dogs, which is adorable because the dogs are... Uh, they're actually livestock, livestock guardian dogs, LSGs, which oh. are amazing. Um, you should look up a picture of them, listeners. Just type LSG, uh, livestock guardian dog. Yeah, LSG dogs. Um, and there's these really amazing ones with like these like shaggy locks. Look fabulous. Um, and the, these dogs bond to the sheep, so they like mm. it's kind of like a, a chicken thinking it's a duck situation, if, or <laughs> whatever that that is, you know. Um, but with a dog being like. Oh, yes, the sheep is my family. Um, and now these dogs are being trained to look after and protect bandicoots? Yeah, so they can't bond to the bandicoots because bandicoots are solitary creatures, apparently. But they've been mm-hmm. taught to recognize and, like, friendlily ignore slash protect them. And they've also been trained to, like, more assertively get rid of foxes um, so as to reduce the predators in the area. Um, gotcha. And, yeah, these eastern barred bandicoots have also been reintroduced to several islands. This is the first animal species in Australia to be successfully reintroduced to the wild and to successfully be upgraded from extinct in the wild. Um, it has been done with other animals, including the Arabian ibex, who are 
for, I love yeah. I- ibexes. They're one yeah, of my so favorite it's, it's animals cool of all time. Yeah, yeah. very yeah. cool animal. Um, yeah. So that's all. Spindly. That. That's nice. Yeah. We we like it when there are more of an animal and not less. Actually, since we're doing a little marsupial positivity corner, I also just wanted to mention I've had my heart warmed at least like twenty, maybe thirty times in the last day or two looking at that photo of a wombat jumping over a stream. Um, mm. It's just the nicest, most delightful thing I've seen in a long time. And every time I see it, I want to show it to everyone around me, i.e. my housemate. And I've showed it to her like three times. And I've been like, I, I know this, you don't this care as much as good. I do. I just love it. And she's like, that's nice, dude. So, yeah. Yeah. He's doing a little hook. You got you, you to gotta take it where you can get it. <laughs> exactly. If you want to see a nice photo of a wombat, go to our Facebook page. Yeah. <laughs> this is important news for you. Speaking of important news. <laughs> Shitpost oh, of oh, the oh, week. Hit that transition out of the park. Perfect. Professional podcaster style. Nice one. So this we got a meme nerd. We did. We got some original content from Rag uh, and a layup from Perno. So thanks, Perno, for sharing this into the Ospol Shitposting Facebook group. And thank you, Rag, for producing it. It is Ned Stark in the breeze saying, Picnic is coming. <laughs> it's simple, you know, and it's, it's you know, bottom text format. It and is. Yes. This yeah. point, it just really tickled me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> normally it's not normally something as kind of pared back and classic in form as this wouldn't be a shit post of the week contender but i it just look, sometimes the meme just works. hits right yeah, yeah yeah so of course this is a reference to the fact that in victoria we have hit that 70% first dose of vaccine target so there's being a, a small lift of lockdown restrictions um we're not going to give you all the deeds, but uh, basically you can travel twice as far for twice as long. Hooray. Still can't have visitors. Cool. But um, you can meet up with four friends in the park and hang out and have a little picnic. Have a picnic. But you're not allowed to drink alcohol. Uh, also, uh, re- restrictions are different in regional Victoria, so don't worry, everyone. Tour buses of up to 10 people can now operate in regional Victoria. Oh, great. No, I mean, I've been concerned about the minibus industry. Well, obviously, like, tourists from Melbourne can't go. So I imagine, like, a bunch of people from Sale are doing tours in, like, Warnington. That checks out. I guess they can already have picnics. So either way, the meme stands. Um, One thing I like about this is that, you know, he's really fucking, he's rugged up and the sky is grey, because that's how it is in the North in Game of Thrones. But, like, that is what it's going to be like for many people trying to have a picnic over the next few weeks as well. yeah. I oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the... only if you're double vaxxed. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. So, oh, as usual, please don't take legal or medical advice. To... Yeah, I booked my second vax shot. That's exciting. I'm booked for this week. So nice. I'm I... I'm booked in for number two in like Picnic three-ish weeks. We will soon be a fully vaxxed podcast. Yeah. Which, if my number mathematics serves me, will mean that we'll be two hundred and fifty percent vaxxed collectively One as a show. Minus three. Carry. Okay, let's yeah. go on to our next <laughs> story. Um, okay, so we'll move on to some other Corona news now. Hey, man, I've got some more beers. Oh, uh, I don't know if I can drink anymore. I'm feeling kind of sick. No, come on, we're having another round of Coronas. And unfortunately, this is much worse Corona news. One really shitty piece of uh, news that came out this week was that uh, Indigenous vaccination rates in Victoria 
were incorrectly inflated. Uh, we've discussed uh, a few weeks ago on the show that Victoria was like way ahead of other states in terms of uh, vaccinating its indigenous population. And it turns out those numbers were not right. So the numbers have been revised down from 60% to 45% of the indigenous population in Victoria having received their first dose. Okay. Um, now, I've seen the ABC is reporting two different numbers on this. One story says that it's been revised down to 45%. Another story says that it's been revised down to 16%, hmm. which is a pretty big, a big difference. discrepancy. But the, that 45% number comes from like the National COVID Task Force, I'm pretty sure. And I've okay. seen it used in other sources. So I think that that's the correct one. But listener, if you have some insight into that, um, let us know. So yeah, here's a quote from the ABC. The task force blamed a software issue that was, quote, incorrectly assigning indigenous status to patients where the field was left blank. So silly. So, Such really? A, uh, why would that be the default? Anyway, that's... It's just, like, deeply embarrassing. What the... Like, you can't afford to be making these kinds of mistakes. Anyway, you know, we wanted to bring this up because... You know, we spoke about, you know, we spoke about the high, you know, w what we thought at the time were the high vaccination rates amongst the indigenous population in Victoria as kind of evidence of the effectiveness of of uh, uh, Aboriginal community controlled health organizations being in charge of vaccine rollouts. So, you know, it's only kind of fair that we mentioned this story that kind of basically does undermine, you know, one piece of evidence for that argument. Mm -hmm. But I would say that in general... You know, that argument still holds. We've still seen several, sure. you know, success stories where indigenous controlled health organizations have very successfully vaccinated their communities. Yep. Um, and, you know, and of course, general, we know that, like, even aside from the COVID situation, like all of the research and inquiries and blah, blah, blah done by the Australian government all show that that's what needs to happen. And like, we've talked about this in the closing the gap target episodes last year and so on that, like the things that we need to do in order to meet these targets is to put First Nations people in charge of decision-making for themselves and their communities. Yes. And, like, to have First Nations staff working in the organizations that are interacting with First Nations communities and, like, really yeah. direct, obvious so there, shit I mean, like that. That's, like... Yeah. There's basic things, like, you know, the, the, the incorrect um, numbers basically had, like, positive responses actually like higher than the total number of indigenous people in the state, which like, you know, you'd think if you, somebody who the was data like, you know, scientist <laughs> looking at that, kind of, it, I mean, yeah, Lydia Thorpe has responded, responded to this by basically saying that, you know, indigenous community controlled organizations should be in charge of the data side of things as well. Yes. Which I think <laughs> makes a lot of sense anyway. So that's a bit of shit news, yeah. but you know, um, also, this week was announced an extra $7.7 million for fast-tracking vaccinations in First Nations communities across the country. So, you know, like, the government's really fucking fallen down on this, as mm -hmm. we've discussed previously. But there is now an effort being made to kind of catch up. Um, but it is kind of too late to avoid some tragedies that have already happened. There already have been Indigenous deaths from COVID that were basically yep. completely preventable from my perspective. But... Noon, you were going to give us next a quick update on the situation in Wilcannia. Yeah, which I think is, you know, directly relevant to what you were just saying. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to do a check-in about Wilcannia, which, you know, we've spoken about before over the last month or so. 
Um, this is a predominantly indigenous remote community in New South Wales where there's been a terrible COVID outbreak and the ABC says more than one in six people there has COVID and that was from mm. several days ago. So who knows? Yeah. Um, the New South Wales government has an ongoing inquiry into the pandemic and the New South Wales government's management of it in general. To, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so this week they heard from Bakinji elder Monica Cohen, who you quoted the other week, Zach, and also yeah. from other community members and organizations that are working there. So one of the things that came up, oh, I'll put a link to this uh, transcript of, of this um, inquest, uh, sorry, inquiry uh, stuff going on as well. So if listeners want to read this whole exchange, it's got a lot of information here. But um, the New South Wales government has sent 30 mobile homes to allow people to isolate safety uh, safely. But Monica Kerwin says that it's too little too late. And she said this to the inquiry. If we'd put in a foolproof plan 12 months ago, we wouldn't have the high numbers that we have now. I feel heartbroken, angry, just like the community. And also, you know, she was saying, like, I approached government health services and members like we tried to do this 12 months ago yeah. and you didn't listen and now this has happened and what the fuck yeah that was a recurring theme you yes know, of, and you know will Kenya especially that yeah that yeah community members and leaders had gone to the government asking for assistance that hadn't gotten it totally um but you know i mean the other thing that this really uh drives home is that the fact that you know adequate housing and public mm. housing is a is a is a health measure it's not just you know i mean housing we know is housing security underlies so many other social and yeah. economic issues but health is a huge one and yeah people you know we know that people in Wilcania are living in massively overcrowded homes if uh, you know as monica Kerwin says you know if extra accommodation had been provided in an emergency capacity early enough this could have been avoided but on a broader scale if you know enough public housing was provided so that people weren't living mm -hmm. 10 12 people to a house yeah this wouldn't have you know totally. you wouldn't have needed the emergency accommodation in the first place so you know and you know it's i guess it's stopped people have stopped saying it so much recently because we all took it like heard way too much of it in the first six months of the pandemic but the thing about mm. you know like the pandemic isn't creating new problems, really. Yeah. It's showing up and exacerbating existing ones. Yeah. And I think there's something really, I don't know, this this direct link between public housing and this health outcome during a pandemic mm. shows the, like, the nonsense behind, like, the liberal capitalist's point of government as like overseeing the economy and not getting too involved in anything or whatever because like mm. all of these things are actually totally interlinked in intimate ways and it's you know yeah. this is an off-topic thing but like the about you know well what about the mental health impact of the lockdown but it's like yeah but what's going to be the mental health impact of letting the disease rampage through the community and it it, it seems like it's like there's this atomization of or siloing of different issues that what it yeah. effectively does is people who don't have money to independently get each of those different things, housing, security, uh, food, whatever, like that they're the ones who suffer when anything goes wrong. So, yeah. Anyway. That theme of like... Um these extremely fragile and massively complex systems that we've developed that have huge gaps in them that people fall through is kind of one that uh, I'll kind of return to later in the show. So 
I don't know, just wanted to draw that thematic sure. connection. Okay, so now we're going to move on to our First Nations story. Um, and I've actually got two stories here, and there's some content warnings for both of them. The first one, I'll be talking about um, an Indigenous woman who was killed in police custody. Um, so we'll put time codes for that one. And the second one is also about ra- racist policing, but it's not graphic. So, um, yeah. All right. So this first story is about Ms. Wynn, uh, who was a Noongar Yamachi woman who died in April 2019. And there is an inquest going on into her death in Perth at the moment. Uh, and this week, uh, Constable Ellis told the inquest on Tuesday that the whole thing started because he and his cop partner saw someone and suspected they could have committed a crime. Um, Jesus and Christ. He said, It is a high crime area. We pulled our vehicle to the side of the road. She ran away. That increased my suspicion she was involved in a crime, he said. Oh, this, co- this backwards cop logic is so... Well, we saw a black person and we thought we'd harass them and they seemed to think they wouldn't enjoy that and left. So obviously the, what we did... Trying to avoid contact with police constitutes a reason to like arrest somebody is just so fucking disgusting. Yep. <clears throat> yep. So I think what then happened is that they radioed this call in and um, a bunch of other cops turn up at Ms. Wynn's place. Uh, and so this is from the SBS. So Detective Sergeant James Stanbury was among the first officers to enter the residence and said police had the right to go in because they suspected a person who had committed a crime was inside. Detective Stanbury told the inquest that police realized immediately that the person wanted for questioning was not at the apartment, but they remained there to question the others inside. Both Ms. Wynn and her mother became distressed and yelled at police officers to leave. Okay, and then this is back... So this is from one Detective Stanbury. And then back to Constable Ellis, who was the one who saw someone on the street who ran away. He then rocks up at the house. And he said this to the inquest. As I entered, I observed approximately four to five police inside and saw the person who fled earlier. At that point, I realized she was a female. So it seems like their story doesn't line up about whether or not Ms. Wynn was actually wanted for anything. But it seems like she wasn't, actually, because they cuff her and take her outside after she starts yelling at them to get out of her house, um, because, at least in part, they suspect that she's taken drugs. Um, So they cuff her, they take her outside, they question her, and decide to send her to hospital for some reason. Um, they all tell each other to go and do a welfare check on her, not entirely sure what that would involve, but regardless, no one does it. And then she gets put in the ambulance, and while she's in the ambulance, she jumps out and runs away. Um, which is kind of an extreme thing to do on one level, but also, like, she's just been abducted against her will as part of an extensive police investigation into someone who may have been her yeah, I mean, walking it's on the street. It's an early distressing situation. It's super. You know, the whole thing is. Seems cooked. like she was potentially distressed before even the cops showed up, and then they obviously made it a million times worse. A million worse. times worse, and then decide to send her to hospital. So, anyway, she jumps out and runs away. And then she's found by Sergeant Jace Williams, who kneels on her until she dies. Um, so Jesus he Christ. knelt on her for two minutes and then put handcuffs on her. And then when he picked her up, uh, he said that she was dead and there were no signs of life. 
Um, the paramedics from the ambulance arrive and revive her and take her to a hospital where she dies again five days later, having not recovered consciousness. Um, and so, yeah, this Sergeant Jace Williams spoke to the inquest and was basically like, oh, yeah, no, I didn't do anything wrong. It was fine. Um, the inquest also yeah, heard I mean, from... Standard fucking procedure. Yeah, yep. Uh, they also heard from Professor David Joyce, who is an emergency physician um, who said that she had been using ice at some point, but he couldn't say to what extent that contributed to her death versus, for example, being knelt on, did say this, there are greater risks associated with some positions of restraint. One might expect that those positions would also confer the greatest risk to someone who is methylamphetamine exposed. So, like, like obviously, Just, uh, right? Like the idea that, like, being restrained by a cop by having like a fully grown man put his entire body weight on a single point on your body to hold you down that's just a fact of life and but you know and if you hadn't been taking drugs then you might not have died from this normal mm -hmm. expected thing yep. it's such a fucked up way to frame that and shit. just like also the whole series of events that led to them being in her house being the, you know, yeah, it's like, like it, why was the, the entire yeah the entire perspective, the entire framework for these discussions is that police are justified in everything that they do. They're normal, right, you know, right. these are just normal activities carried out by the state. And if you happen to do like die, clearly you've done something individually wrong to weaken your own health and thereby die in the course of the police doing normal stuff. Yeah, like just. <laughs> It's, it's yeah, but also yeah, you're not allowed to run away from these armed goons who are really likely to kill you, because uh, obviously that would mean that they were right to kill you. That you've so, done a crime. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really know what commentary to give on it. Really, it's tragic and sad. It's another death at the hands of police um, of someone who was in crisis, um, and. There's also something really sickening to me about killing the same person twice. Like, I don't know, not not to say that they shouldn't have revived, obviously, that would, that's ridiculous, but, like, something about, like, while I was reading this story, that just kind of, like, sat with me. Uh, oh, I mean, it's deeply horrifying. All of these stories are so horrifying. The tragedy is basically incomprehensible, and, you know, for what? For what? Yeah, so the inquest is ongoing, so I imagine we'll hear more about this in the next couple of weeks. Um, yep. Yep. We'll, we'll keep you updated. Thanks for taking us through that, Noon. And there, there was one other First Nations story that you wanted to touch on. Yeah, and so this one is also about racist policing, but of a different kind. Um, this is about sly grog laws in the Kimberley in Western Australia. Um, which make it illegal to carry more than about one slab of beer in a car or on a train, weirdly, even though there aren't really train lines there. Um, you can cop up to a $10,000 fine for this, and it's supposed to stop sly grog, i.e. illegal liquor trade, um, but the law exempts A, pastoralists, B, tourists, and C, workers on remote sites, i.e. like fly-in, oh, fly-out workers. So great, great, great. Basically, yeah, nothing the, racist about this. The only people it applies to is Aboriginal people. And it's a $10,000 fine that, like, 
Obviously, it's not going to work for its stated purpose of stopping the illegal liquor trade, because, like... You can't imprison someone on the basis of unpaid fines. The actual people who are doing the crime will be like, oh, I'm a tourist. But yes, a bunch of indigenous people will be handed life-destroying debts and will probably go to jail for them. Uh, and, like, the specific laws are super fucked. So I, I didn't have them all here because it's, like, not really the point. But it's, like, more than one slab of beer, more than three bottles of wine, more than one type of liquor. And, like, so you can't have a six-pack of beer and a bottle of red. But, but like, like, there's no sensible version of this. It's just bad. But also the specifics of it are, like, who can who spent so much time designing such a bad law i i mean it's the same, same with all of these carceral approaches to right. these kinds of problems like you're coming in way too fucking late in the problem yeah you know what might reduce illegal liquor trade social ill is like right? yeah d- helping yeah. people live meaningful lives uh not Turn to alcohol, provide drug and alcohol counselling and, and it's welfare. It's the complete opposite of the global trend towards, you know, decriminalising and taking a health-first approach yep. towards any kind of substance abuse yep. issue. Like, we've just got, we've got a, a you know, a so-called justice system that is operating in the face of, like, flying in the, in the complete face of all evidence, mm-hmm. of all kind of understanding of these issues, based on one fucking principle, which is just to punish people and to punish a specific race of people. <laughs> yes. Like, that's, that, there's yes. no other way to interpret this. Sh- absolutely fucking shocking stuff. Well, uh, abolish the fucking police. I mean, what else? You can't, yeah. what else? What other conclusion can you draw from stories like this? All right, well, let's move on now to our next story. You fucked up. Yeah, so this this story, uh, thankfully, is, is less tragic. Um, and, yeah, definitely different tone. So this, these next couple of stories that I'm going to talk about, uh, what I like to think of as, like, big politique. You know what I mean? It's like economics and fucking geopolitics and it's not did mil- this fucking schlub lie in parliament about where he got a million dollars from it's about like <laughs> exactly how will this affect it, the trout population yeah <laughs> that's closer to it it's more of a trout population story it's um and look these is you know i tend to kind of stay away from big politique or ec- big economic stories because you know i'm not a geopolitics or economics guy but I did read a fucking shitload of articles, and his, and I'll try to sort of condense it down. So these next two stories are going to mostly be about our relationship with China, which again, in no way an expert, but you trout know. population, trout populations. Um, so the headline for this one is that the Australian economy could be about to take a massive hit, and it's not getting that much coverage. And this is a story that I was put onto by friend of the show Jen. Thank you very much for the heads Shout up outs. on this, and also for doing a bunch of research into this and then just handing it to me, which was awesome. So thank you, Jen, for laying the groundwork for this story. Co-producer credit for this story. Mm -hmm. So the two main ingredients of this story are, on the one hand, you've got the world's most indebted company. And then on the other hand, you have Australia's biggest export commodity. So 
can't these are the wait two, to see how these two forces how we bring them combine. together. Yeah. yeah. So first up, let's talk about the company. The company in question is called Evergrande. This is an enormous Chinese company. They're mostly a real estate developer, the second biggest real estate developer in China, in fact. Um, but they also do a bunch of other shit, which people tend to do when their brains get poisoned by like having access to too much cash flow. Okay. For example, <laughs> starting a football team and <laughs> developing electric cars, getting your own brand of bottled water, this type of stuff. Of course. But mostly it's, you know. Diversifying their bonds. Exactly. Um, but mostly it's property. So they rode... Uh, the wave of this massive property boom in China that, that kicked off sort of in the mid nineties. Um, interesting stat I came across while researching this story, nearly three quarters of household wealth in China is tied up in property, hmm. um, which is eye watering. I mean, compare that to Australia where it's somewhere around half of household wealth. Wow. And it's acknowledged here that, that we're massively lot. overexposed yeah. Yeah, wow. to Holy financial shit. risk in the housing market. That. Yeah. Huh. So it's like, yeah, it's a very, you know, <laughs> precarious economic situation. So this company, Evergrande, this developer, they have over 800 projects that are currently underway. 1.4 million homes that have been pre-sold, but as yet are uncompleted. There's too many projects. Just <laughs> just make a different company, you know? Like, just, just stick with, like, six Six yeah, projects. 100 <laughs> homes per, prop, per per company max cap. Let's just bring that rule in. So, kind of what's been happening recently is that it's emerged that, you know, I mean, emerged, it's been happening for a long time. Sure. Evergrande, as I mentioned, it's the most indebted company in the world. They have over $300 billion, US dollars uh, equivalent, in debt. Yeah, that's and too many hundred maybe, billions of debt. Too many, that's too much I feel debt. like it's going to be a recurring theme that I... I'm not very well informed about the story, listeners, so I'm just here to make glib comments. There's too much of several things happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, over the last few weeks, they've stopped being able to pay what they owe people. Their share prices have plummeted. Their credit rating has been downgraded. There have been protests held at their headquarters in China. Like, the whole shebang of, like, big company takes a nosedive. Like, we're in serious crash territory here. And And wrong times. Exactly. Um, the main sort of touchstone that commentators have been using for comparison is Lehman Brothers, um, which obviously Lehman Brothers defaulting on a whole bunch of loans and not being able to give people money is one of the major things that precipitated the global financial crisis. So there are some people being like, Hey, we could be on the edge of something like really, really bad here. Um, yeah, well, uh, I can't remember with Lehman Brothers specifically, but it was also about property. Yeah, subprime mortgages, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. That's, yeah, it was like a credit crisis. Um, and credit for housing is part of the, like, economic stew that this whole situation kind of emerged out of. Mm-hmm. Um, again, property boom, individual investors, cheap credit from the government, Way too much investment in housing, you know. These these are these are very common traits across many of the world's biggest economies. And so there's a lot of speculation happening at the moment amongst financial commentators, of whose writing I have read a lot in the past 24 hours, and I can tell you that they are a very fun bunch and not at all uh, a bunch Giant of dry nerds. nerds. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, you know, speculation is is Beijing going to step in 
Beijing. Now I sound like a fucking economics writer. Is the Chinese government going to step in or are they going to let this company fail? Mm -hmm. Um, because basically in the past when big companies like this have threatened to go under in China, the government has stepped in and, you know, not let it happen. Uh, but they've been making these sort of overtures, um, as I understand it over the last few months of being like, no company's too big to fail guys. So don't rely on us. Don't, don't think that you're bulletproof. And that's kind of like fueling a lot of the uncertainty and fear sure, around sure. this potential collapse. The most likely outcome seems to be some kind of like managed dismantling, mm -hmm. you know, the Chinese government is not just going to let this massive company fall over and like suffer all the economic consequences of that. Um, and they have more levers that they can pull in this situation than say the U S government did right, in the right. case of Lehman brothers, because, you know, <clears throat> communism, you um, should see the scare quotes that Zach's doing there, but yeah, appropriate scare quotes for an appropriate use of the word communism is fine. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's sort of lays the groundwork for the first half of the story. You know about Evergrande, the cool. debt ridden developer in China. And the second ingredient of this story is Australian commodity exports and specifically iron ore. You know much about iron ore, Noon? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, kind of hard. Um, well, I think it's more, fairly it's more heavy. Kind of wet. Oh. <laughs> I turns Which out I know nothing about iron ore. Inform me, Zach. Well, the dirt me. that it comes in is wet. But anyway, as it relates, as it pertains to this story, um, iron ore is relevant because we are the world's largest exporter of iron ore. We, we export roughly twice as much as our next biggest competitor, which is Brazil. And if you want to read some truly horrifying stories about, like, industrial mass murder, um, look up Brazilian mining operations. It's horrifying stuff. Yep. But anyway, so iron ore is our largest export commodity. It makes up about 20% of our exports, roughly 5% of our GDP. And it's bigger than our next three biggest export commodities combined. So Great. the message here is... We export a lot of iron ore and we make a lot, a lot of money off exporting iron ore. That's mm -hmm. the, you know, you can ignore the numbers and just take that message. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's our over number the last, one thing. It's, it's really out to our big number one thing. And over the last year and a half, we've, you know, the, vo the volume that we're exporting and the price that we're getting for the iron ore has massively increased. Mm -hmm. So, increased. Going, you know, yeah. So, uh, in March, in uh, last year, we exported about $6 billion worth of iron ore. July this year, we exported $17 billion. Whoa. And the price like per ton tripled in that time. Why? So, <laughs> well, China is our main customer. They right. buy 70% of our iron ore, okay. and we provide about 60% of their iron ore needs. And this okay. massive spike in price is basically driven by this construction boom that was undertaken by the Chinese government during the pandemic as kind of like economic going. stimulus. Right, exactly. Right. So, yeah, about half of the iron ore that we send over to China goes into steel production for construction. So, and, and I'm going to read a quote here from Jen from uh, the info she sent me. Uh, so, somehow amidst the COVID pandemic, Australia's main export exploded in value and underwent an unprecedented rate of growth. So, you know, it has been part of what has kept us economically insulated to a certain sure. extent against the economic effects of the pandemic. 
which is important to note. But yeah, we have established basically this like economic codependence with China around this one resource because China basically domestically can't fulfill its own supply sure. and there is no one else who can who give can it to them in the volumes much. that they yeah, need. Yeah. Exactly. Although they are trying. They're opening, you know, uh, more mines. They're trying to get more from India and more from Brazil. And people will probably have heard that, you know, we're kind of in the middle of a trade war with China at the moment. They've stopped importing our wine and um, lobsters. American soybeans. But yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, a few different things. But, you know, iron ore, they can't stop accepting it. Gotcha. Um, So our economy is heavily reliant on trading this one thing to one other country. And in that other country, the industry that uses the most of that thing is potentially about to experience a serious collapse. This is troubling information. And this is on top of already slowing steel production in China. Their their economy is slowing down, you know, in a, in a broader sense. Um, you know, construction is slowing down due to COVID restrictions. And also China, unlike Australia, is actually trying to do something about its emissions. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that's enough is another question. But one of the things that they uh, are targeting is steel production so so we send the ore over they turn that ore into steel and turning ore into steel is a hugely carbon Carbon intensive intensive process exactly so the chinese government is leaning on steel producers being like you are you guys are emitting too much you need to make less steel so um you know they're buying less of it from us uh and the other thing that's affecting this which um I don't know. It's just an interesting detail. They're hosting the Winter Olympics next year and they don't want um, smog in Beijing. And sure. so like they did last time they hosted the Olympics, they're just like basically... Stop industry for a couple months. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they just put a fucking handbrake on um, on pollution for a little bit uh, and then crank it back up again afterwards, of course, once the cameras have left. But so yeah, as a result of this, iron ore prices are already crashing. So, you know, I mentioned that over the last year and a half, we've seen this massive spike in iron ore prices Mm -hmm. to the point where in July this year, we were exporting for about $220 a ton. As of this week, the iron ore price is $104 a ton. So it's like less than half of what it was uh, two months ago, which is eye-watering. And the entire Australian stock market, and this was news to me because I don't follow the ticker tape guys, you know. I I I don't subscribe to Alan Kohler's fucking email newsletter or whatever but the the entire australian share market is being dragged down across the board as a result of this one export commodity taking a nosedive wow Uh, and allow me to just take a moment here to say that one of the companies suffering hardest from this is fortescue metals and as always i just love to send a really heartfelt fuck you to twiggy forest eat shit you fucking asshole so with that out of the way why does that matter? You know, why does all this, what, what, is, what is all this going to mean? As with these questions of markets and economics and blah, 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 it's, you know, it's a bunch of guessing a lot of the time because we have these extraordinarily complex systems that nobody can really control or understand. Control, exactly. Um, you know, the fact that things have even gotten to this point shows that nobody is in control of this thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just, to a certain extent, resent having to talk about economics in this way. Like, you know, I basically have the opinion the economy is fake and made up, but also it has a whole bunch of real world consequences. And so, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that we can discuss. So, you know, one impact of this, you know, if we see um, iron ore 
exports to China like massively, massively mm -hmm. drop is that that's a huge chunk of tax revenue that the Australian government's not going to be bringing in. Remember, you know, this export accounts for roughly 5% of our GDP. Like it's a big, you know, losing tax revenue from that is going to hurt. Obviously, yep. MMT, government can print money, but also- But they don't. But they don't, <laughs> is the other thing. So that, you know, and, you know, beyond that, that can have, you know, massive economic knock-on effects within Australia as well. Totally. A liberal government's response to this is going to be, you know, austerity. Yep. Um, in, Cutting services in, and spending exactly. to make up for the lost revenue, maybe increase GST. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, this is an example, um, you know, of what I, what I was kind of trying to touch on earlier, that we have these like extremely complex global mm. economic systems that are stretched really, really thin. Supply chains are breaking constantly and it's been happening throughout COVID as pressure is applied at these various points and suddenly you can't go and get coriander at the supermarket anymore because of something that's happening in another state or another mm -hmm. country. Um, and this is going it's to become specific. an ever... Have you not been able to get coriander yes. recently? Yes, okay. a couple of times, yeah. Gotcha. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm in a very privileged position for that to be the thing that um, hits me the hardest. But th yeah. we're going to be seeing, you know... This kind of thing happen, th these kinds of d supply chain disruptions happen more frequently as the global economic system becomes ever more unstable, uh, which is the direction that we're headed in. So, you know, this is kind of a, uh, a precursor to that or, you know, not even a precursor, just like an early example. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the kind of discussion around the fact that we are like enormously economically reliant on China. That. Sure. That's not really a sustainable thing to do. I mean, the Australian government knows and has said that they want to and they need to diverse, diversify, you know, our exports. Um, so, but they haven't fucking really done, done anything yeah. about it. And, you know, we send 70% of this one thing to China. It's not like you can find another client right, who's that's just gonna, gonna just take... like pick up 35 it's also like yeah you guys want like 900 there's... billion tons of iron <laughs> yeah yeah there's not like another yeah it's not like you got to move a, f a few extra units of whatever it's like a yeah. whole it's not a fell off the back of a truck well, scenario it's, it's an eighth of the world's population that <laughs> kind of you can't like like, they're not gonna like another one of level. them spring up overnight yeah yeah. But, you know, I mean, also I think it points to the fact that, you know, our economy is very reliant on mining, which is also not sustainable. Aside from all of the, you know, the fact that we shouldn't be doing it in the first place because it violates Indigenous sovereignty and is terrible for the environmental health of this country, that, like, we can't be reliant on exporting this thing because we're totally unable to control whether or not there's going to be demand for that product. You know, and it really put me in mind of, you know, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about um, instability and job losses in the tertiary education sector, for mm -hmm. example, which is our largest, you know, education is our largest non-commodity export. It's a huge part of our uh, economy. But yeah. there have been 40,000 job losses in the tertiary sector over the last mm -hmm. year. I mean, that is mm -hmm. that is wild. We need to be, like, think about... You know, how much more sustainable investing in education is versus, you know, investing in mining. Not to mention that, you know, there are all these um, very exciting potential ways for us to build new sustainable economies. You know, the obvious, the obvious one is in renewable energy. Sure. 
Like, there are so there's so much that we could be doing in order to kind of offset the massive risks that we're currently at. Um, and you know, and now it's like the butterfly flapping its wings is going to be this property company in China potentially going under. Going under. And the hurricane is going to be welfare payments cut in 2024. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Huge economic hardship in Australia. So it's you know that that's a you know situation that is still developing. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on that as it develops. Um, and uh, I don't know. I'm sure that there are economics and numbers people's people in our listener base who uh, will have thoughts on this. So you know, I'd love to Please hear it because I only yeah. learned what an economy is about um, yesterday. So. You know, maybe there's a, maybe it's possible, very possible that I missed something. Probable even. But anyway, all of this is to say that right now is not really a great time for us to be pissing off China. Anyway, time for me to take a big sip of water and let's jump into our next segment. Fashy Australia. Well, this next story is about us actively and deliberately pissing off China. Um <laughs> Thanks, Noon. Yeah. Sorry, I should let you take the big sip of water. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, our very cool, strategic, normal guy government has just signed a new security pact with the UK and the US, our best friends. And now we're all together in one acronym. AUKUS. AUKUS. AUKUS, which really rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yeah. um, This new security pact has been described by China as, quote, extremely irresponsible. And they've also said that it, quote, seriously undermines regional peace and stability and intensifies the arms race, which is all stuff that you want to hear from the ascendant global power that's basically next door. Um, France is also really pissed about this, which is uh, less scary and funnier. Um, Quote here from their foreign minister, it's really a stab in the back. Um, Hey, you know what? (laughs) Eat shit, France. (laughs) (laughs) You have no idea how hard I had to stop myself reading that quote in, like, a thick French accent. But then I was like, what separates us from the friendly Geordies of the world? You know? (laughs) That's all all that stopped me. Um, Now I'm uh, sad that we're missing it, but... (laughs) And the other... uh, thing you may have seen about this new AUKUS pact in the news is that at the press conference where it was announced, Joe Biden forgot Scott Morrison's name, which, yeah. again, in this world, you have to take it where you can get it. And the fact he says, <laughs> uh, I also want to thank that fella down under. Good on you, pal. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. Like, the, the rule of threes for comedy, goes. Biden hit that shit fucking out of the park. He had the bases loaded. Okay. So this pact is about sharing military capabilities. Um, And central to this pact is that we are going to be building eight nuclear submarines. Um, So what this, you know, AUKUS means basically that Australia is going to get access to information about nuclear propulsion systems, which is information that the US has only previously shared with the UK. So we're getting very top secret, important boy info about how to build the special engine. So this is why France is pissed. Because we had a ninety billion dollar deal to buy twelve conventional subs uh-huh, uh-huh. from them. Conventional meaning like not nuclear. Uh, yeah, like diesel, diesel and, and electricity, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe. Which like also doesn't are submarines in general just troubling they're troubling things to me. But anyway, 
France, you know, we tore up this deal that we had with them, and they have now withdrawn Sacre their bleu. ambassadors. The yeah. Australians. <laughs> exactly. They cancelled their submarine deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ninety billion dollar I do's. Um, so they've withdrawn their ambassadors to the U.S. and to Australia over this, which is like uh, everyone's real upset about it. Yeah, exactly. And then, but it's like, and I was I mentioned this to Holly this morning. She was like, "What do ambassadors do? Are they just there to be withdrawn when countries get pissed at each other?" And the answer is, as far as I can tell, yeah, pretty much. So the plan is we're going to build eight nuclear submarines which are going to be more expensive than the 12 conventional submarines that we had already commissioned from france which means that we're likely going to be paying even more than the 90 billion dollars for less subs um on the topic but of, Zach, uh, they're nuclear and they're from the cool boys in the u.s so like well, they, you can see the bind that morrison is in making this decision. 30 billion dollars um, <laughs> four subs Get to hang out with my French bros. guy. Slot ins and outs. I mean, Macron is a very fucking slappable guy. Like, yeah, that's you true. Know, on that, I will say that I agree with Scott Morrison. You're right. I think I would prefer to hang out with Joe Biden than Macron. It's close. He calls you pal. He's call- he calls you slugger. I I would literally just ask him to talk about the, like England and the BBC all day. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Um, on the subject of should we be spending 90 plus billion dollars on a bunch of submarines, I have this, uh, comic here from Samuel Leighton Dore, who you should definitely go, or Leighton Dore, who you should definitely mm-hmm. go and follow over on Twitter and Instagram for cool queer art stuff. And you should get his, uh, uh, jigsaw puzzle, which was really fun and beautiful. Yep. And there hard. There you go. Yeah. Shout, uh, shouts to, to the Sam Leighton Dore puzzle. Uh, he put out this comic. It's somebody on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is, what should the government do? A, decisive climate action. B, livable income guarantee. C, submarines with guns. D, address deaths in custody. Mm-hmm. Um, the great thing about this is that you could do A, B, and D with the money you were spending on C, probably. But, you know, we all know that that's not how governments how governments or money works. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know... Uh, don't be so immature. We can't just spend this fake money on this thing that you want that would have good outcomes for real people. Instead of these useless war machines? Yes. <laughs> that, that we're not even scheduled to get until 2040. And That's the thing well, I don't understand about any of these fucking projects. It's like, <laughs> it's been a long time since we've had, like, a real war. Like, I mean, obviously we've invaded Afghanistan, we've invaded Iraq, and, like... But, like... Like, not a... A war for the survival of the countries in the West that are sending the troops to the war. Mm. But they're like, you know, I think by 2040, we might. Might be time for us to be rolling up our sleeves. Hopefully it's not fucking 2038 or whatever, because... We'll be fucked. And we're not going to have them by 2040. That's when they're slated to arrive. But of course, like, you know, part of the reason why that's, like, we got to tore up... Why we got to tear up that sub deal with France... Is because there were all was... sorts of complications and delays and cost blowouts because yeah. that's how these fucking things work. So we're not even going to get until twenty forty. I mean, and by the, the way... other thing that springs to mind is the the what are the F seventeen fighter yes. jets yeah. from the US? That, one, like one billion per uh, yeah. plane, and they 
safely land roughly 50% of the time. They overheat so much that they have to open the, like, the, 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 ba- the doors, the, like, ordinance d- doors to get a cool breeze going through. It's like, just so much fucking, this is, this is terminal fart huffing. Of, like, American Empire. We are so powerful. We have the coolest gear. And then, you know, it's just like nothing ever actually happens or succeeds. You might be able to get one of them succeeds. in two decades. Yeah. And then Australia is like, you know what? This is the horse I want to hitch my fucking wagon to. Like, what are you doing? Uh, by the way, we're not even going to have the capacity to maintain these submarines ourselves. We're going to be completely reliant on the U.S. to run them. In other words, these are just going to be American submarines that we build and pay for. And that they will tell us what to do with. Like, getting angry just saying this shit out loud. And it's so annoying because, like, I don't want them to make good decisions about spending army budget. <laughs> Bad decisions seem better. But at the same time, I'm like, if you're going to do this terrible thing, why are you such so bad at it? Yeah. Why are you so I mean, bad at your terrible plans? The, the, like, and so, the, the, I think that's one element of the story, right? You've got the fact that these submarines are like, they're super fucking expensive, they're probably never even going to happen, you know, the whole project is logistically and technically going to be a fucking mess. But then on the other hand, you have the, like, geopolitical implications of making this pact and saying right, that you're going right. to develop... Which are very real know, and immediate. Nuclear, exactly! <laughs> You say you're telling China that you're actually that you're going to have eight nuclear-powered submarines, and like here's the thing about nuclear submarines is that they're nuclear-powered. Everybody else who has nuclear-powered submarines also has fucking nuclear-powered warheads in right. those submarines. We don't have nuclear capability yet, but clearly this With is weapons. a precursor to that. Yeah. yeah. With weapons, yeah. Sorry, yeah. we don't have nuclear weapons yet, but this is clearly. A precursor to that, the U.S.'s tactical, or I guess it's more strategic, sorry. War nerds. Um, sorry, war nerds. I was, gonna, I was, I was, I was searching for, what are the kinds, what are the spreadsheet games you play? Uh, Paradox Interactive. Grand yeah, but what's the like, genre? Forex, Grand Strategy. Yeah, sorry, Grand Strategy, Forex nerds. It's, whether it's tactical or strategy, I couldn't say. But the U.S.'s plan here is to have us hang out near China with nuclear weapons pointed at them. That's what the fucking point of this is. And you know who understands that? China. You know who doesn't seem to understand what the fucking repercussions of that will be? Our entire political class. The other thing is, is, you know, you mentioned before about communism, Zach. And you know who Mm. can build submarines in less than, quick maths here, 18, (laughs) 19 years? It's, it's, it's the Chinese government. It's, it's the state capitalists. I mean, communists. Yeah. Well, Whoa, we're going to be cancelled by I'm, some Mao Zedong thought I'm spicing up the spicing up the chats. Um, yeah. War with China is really not a good idea for anyone, mm. but especially not for us. Mm. And, like, backing the US into this conflict is extraordinarily silly. The idea that, like, U.S. victory is assured. Again, we're talking about the terminal fart-huffing of a crumbling empire. We went to war with Iraq 
twice, three times, and one of those times they didn't even have a government there, and we lost all of them. Yeah. So, like, I... The, don't China even fucking... Doesn't seem like that, it. It's ridiculous. It's just, like... <laughs> These people live in a completely different plane of reality, but there's yeah. you know these ecosystems that constantly reinforce these pseudo intellectual feedback loops where people talk about you know containing uh, and combating China. No, that time like it's already come and gone. You have already lost the 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 idea now is how to like continue to exist with a relative amount of independence mm-hmm. and. Uh, prosperity while China takes over the world. Like, that's the position that we're in, especially in our region. And, like, guys, they're buying all of our iron ore. Like, what's going to happen when that stuff's happening? Like, you know, they they have so much power to fuck us over economically if they want to. Please stop pissing them off. Anyway, for a slightly more radical take on this that's a little bit less... um, uh, (laughs) I keep saying it, but a little bit, little less huffing the farts of uh, traditional geopolitical slash military industrial um, economic analysis. I want to read a tweet from at Cannibality, uh, which I think is uh, just really, it's a really, it's a really good take and I couldn't paraphrase it any better. So I'm just going to read it out. Great. America has 400 military bases and more than 100,000 soldiers stationed in the Pacific. We need to renew the movement of sovereign indigenous nations for a nuclear-free and independent Pacific or risk our ocean being reduced to a staging ground for imperialist wars. Yep. That's yeah, it. I was going to yeah. say, you know, like, at this point, our only option is global proletarian revolution and, you know, obviously anti-colonial revolution. So yep. maybe we should do that. Yeah, that seems like a pretty good solution. Um <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, deal all with of this, the, like... Uh, how, like, housing built investment iron issue as well. Uh, somehow, I feel like that might help. I don't know. Yeah, and, like, I don't know. Even on, like, an environmental level, if you're talking about... You know, it's, it's this thing, it's like, we exported this iron ore to China, and then they turn it into steel, and technically the emissions from that process are theirs, right? Mm-hmm. But, like... You know, we why, why do we make steel here? Why don't we develop low emission processes mm-hmm. for doing that and put that into you know make that a backbone of like uh, a new renewable economy yeah. where we build environmentally sustainable public housing? It's anyway, it's, it's yeah, there are so that many would in, ways that would require like four or five important men to have uncomfortable conversations with their pals about yeah. funding. So, I mean, that I don't w- think it's really a feasible option. No, in this way, Scott Morrison gets to claim that we are the seventh country in history to get nuclear-powered subs. And that looks Everyone really remembers fucking sweet on a resume. The top seven. Yeah, top seven is absolutely... He skated in, you know, <laughs> if, if he was number nine, he'd be in trouble. Top seven... That's not really... Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... Kay. Again, you know, my takes on this are going to be relatively um, underdeveloped and ill-informed. So send us I a enjoy podcast hearing if you disagree. Uh, and Thanks, I hope did as well. Yeah. If, you know, even if they are wrong, hopefully they're at least entertaining. Ideally, you'd want to have either one, 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 of, one of those two things. Either happen. wrong or entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quick maths. 
right. All right. Let's finish up the yeah. show. Let's do it. If you want a podcast, you gotta do a lot of shit. That's not technically podcasting. You still gotta do that shit. Follow us on Patreon. Follow us on social media. On the on the Facebook. On on the tweets. On the Insta. Um, there's a cute picture of a wombat leaping over a stream. Um, That's a uh, good point with which it is hard to argue, Noon. I yeah. will follow our Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, support us on patreon.com forward slash OzPulseSnackPod. $1 a month. You get access to our Discord. You can see photos of some of the food that we eat and also our dogs and also other people. You have yeah. chats. You have debates. Pay $6.90 a month. You can send in requests for topics for bonus episodes we've got a request a cool one. to talk about polyamory so i'm trying to think about how i can talk about that without being a huge asshole um but this this month I we're going to talk about it. dog training i, I yeah. promise nothing i said if not how yeah yeah um this month's going to be dog training um but yeah we, we would really appreciate your support but if you can't support us financially or, or you don't want to the best next best thing to do is leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can uh, give us a thumbs up or a follow. You can give us the follow on Spotify as well, which is helpful. You know, anything to give us that little boost in the algorithm. Anything you can click, really. Anything you can click related to SnackPod, just click it. Give it a big click. Also, if there's not enough of noon monologuing in your life, you can watch me play video games on Twitch. It's twitch.tv forward slash noonplaysgames. I'm playing like four days a week. Uh, I'm also reading a cool uh, book about um, Jewish magic uh, and and nice. robots and stuff. So if that sounds cool. It does. Yeah, it's called Unsung. You can read it yourself, but also you can listen to me reading it to you on Twitch. Sounds lovely. In the meantime, now it's time for a pub game. I think I've spoken on the show before about the fact that Dante hates water. He's got like a phobia of running about water. Rain. Oh, running water is on. Any any kind of running or falling, any kind of water that isn't lying in a bowl, stationary. Yeah. Yes. No, well, puddles. Puddles. He's manageable. A, he's probably likes puddles too much. Okay. <laughs> uh, especially if they're in the gutter and there's little bits of shit and and paper towel, etc., sort right, of floating right. in them. Yeah. Perfect. Really yeah. painting a picture. Yeah. Um. Actually, Holly made a great meme. Maybe I should post it to um the Discord about how Dante loves drinking disgusting water out on walks, but hates his water at home. Anyway, he's impossible to give a bath to. I mean, it's not impossible. It's just like a multi-hour process that involves a whole lot of physical struggle like and the bathroom exactly yeah i have to put him in a full body lock is that a full nelson help me out here wrestling fans and and holly is sort of like pause you know we're both in like our undies basically like getting in the absolutely bath. soaked and dog hairs getting yeah, fucking yeah. everywhere it's a mess anyway so we've been um hiring someone with like a mobile you know hiring a mobile dog sure. washing person make it that problem um, <laughs> exactly well, yeah professionally um and that actually went really well the last couple of times that we did it but you know hard lockdown happened not allowed to do mobile dog washing anymore so dante has been slowly getting like stinkier and stinkier over mm -hmm. the past mm -hmm. two months or so and he's we're at the point now where like you put him in any room in the house and he like he his stink immediately just fills up the entire room like it's like it's like walking through a bubble that is bad yeah it's 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 intense. The thing is, like, you know, I know intellectually that it's bad that he smells so strong. 
and probably that he smells bad. But to me, he smells like Dante, and I love it. Like yeah. I love his, yeah. I love his stinky smell. His breath, I wouldn't say that I love his breath. His breath is, you know, and we do brush his teeth sort of separately from the bath. Mm-hmm, but anyway, mm-hmm. Dante's very, very stinky at the moment. He's stinking up the house, but. As part of these new restrictions that have just been lifted, mobile dog washing is back, baby. Hey. Yeah. So we are once again going to make washing Dante someone Good else's one. problem. Um, she's okay with it. It's fine. He doesn't give her a hard time. Yeah. Good. That's nice. Because they've got, they've got straps and harnesses and, you know. They know what's up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're professionals. Bagel's been doing well. I don't know if I said this last time. I can never remember because, you know, my life is a series of giving pup dates to people who I haven't spoken to for a week or so. Um, but uh, I got a new toy from a flirt pole. Did I mention this on air? I don't, I don't think so. But Noon, this is just so inappropriate. <laughs> so many people I'd be like a flirt pole or, or someone sent back a photo of a, a dog chew toy that looks like a dildo. Oh, there are my, I got to send back a picture yeah. of my one that looks like a clitoris. But um, no one th- knows what a float pole is. I, I did it until I bought a series of them because they're the best uh-huh. dog toy in the world. It's basically like a cat toy, right? Or a fishing rod. Like it's a rod and then there's like a string on the end and then attached to the end of the string is a chew toy. And yeah. so you stand still and wave the float pole around and the dog runs after the toy and he gets tired out and I do not. Um, but uh, yeah, so I bought That's a series a of... It is, yeah. Um, I bought a series of them, special like bulldog intensity ones, um, because you know you buy a regular chew toy for bagel. That's I might as well just like buy a bag of a, a, a pillow and just like break it open <laughs> in the middle of my room. Like there's no, it, that's all it achieves. Skip the middleman. Yeah, exactly. Um, the middle dog. And you know you can buy flimsy flirt poles that are fine for a Jack Russell or whatever, but. Yeah, so anyway, I, I got a different brand of one because the last one kept breaking after a couple of months, which is pretty good, honestly, for a, a toy. But um, uh, it's a new telescoping metal one. Um, it's real good, uh, and it's been so nice. And just giving Bagel five, ten minutes of zooms in the backyard before we go for a walk, and he's like a different mm. dog. It just makes such yeah. a big difference. Um, I wish so, that I had a toy that I could get Dante interested in that way because yeah. I got him a float pole on your recommendation. Right. Didn't, didn't take to it. it. Yeah. He wouldn't. Yeah. And I can't get him to like chase me around the backyard or like chase a toy around or whatever because he's like, I want to go for a walk, bro. What are you I'm doing? I'm not playing right now? with you right now. Yeah. Why are you wasting my time? It's walking. <laughs> it's very funny. He just, just won't engage. Yeah. Anyway. I'm cool. happy for you and Bagel, though. Yeah, it's great. No, it's, it's lovely. Listeners, if you have a dog, get him a float pole, give it a go. Make make one, improvise one, and see if they go for it, and then invest. I've played with it with Bagel, and it is really fun. It's extremely enjoyable. Yeah. Even if Dante disdained it after I spent, you know, 100 bucks plus shipping. That's yeah. fine. I'm not bitter at all about it. I didn't even think about it at all. I'll take that off your hands. Thank you very much for joining us this week, listeners. Thanks, listeners. Um, we, uh, yeah, we, we've got some interesting stories lined up for you next week as well, um, with some listener some contributions. Some cut from this one that we're excited to do yeah keep your ears peeled for that um but in the meantime uh take it as easy as you possibly can and keep on snacking in the free world uh fuck that uh that fellow down under um (laughs) crunch crunch (laughs) fuck you pal fuck you mr prime minister (laughs) yeah
Crunch, crunch.